This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, and welcome to episode number 26 of Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham and Parisa Noble. Kyler and Parisa, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Happy to be here. Great episode planned uh, again today. We've got a, a couple things to cover here today. Um, first of all, to start the show, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, cloud a little bit more. We talked about cloud quite a bit in our last episode but there's some new uh, news that Microsoft has announced regarding the cloud and Azure. So we're going to talk about that in our first segment. And then later in the show, I'm excited to have uh, an author on the show that has written a book called Building a Digital Future. And it's a great book that was just released on Wiley Publications that uh, covers digital transformations and the people process and technology side of digital transformations. So we're gonna have the author of that book on the show and we're going to talk about general digital transformation best practices, which will be a great conversation. And it's it's uh, the plan is to cover some pretty broad topics as it relates to transformation. So that'll be a, a great discussion. And then later after that, we're going to unpack the uh, book a little bit more. The three of us, uh, Parisa, Kyler, and I will talk more about the book and some of the findings from the discussion. So we'll cover that later in the show. So you definitely don't want to miss this episode. And as always, you can find us every Wednesday morning on YouTube, Apple Google, Spotify, etc. So um, before we get into our guest, though, before we bring on our guest, uh, Lippy, uh, that wrote the book that I was talking about, there is some news that Microsoft recently announced related to the cloud. And last week, uh, Parisa, you were on holiday, but we had a whole episode that really covered a lot of different things related to cloud. And there's new news since then, since that episode came out that, that uh, relates to Windows. So tell us what you found or what, what's this headline story all about? Yes. Well, Microsoft just released a new product called Windows 365. So I'll dive into that. But their timing is on point and it's very telling just where the world is going. Obviously, 2020 pushed a lot of people remote and whether people are going back to the office, they're still remote. I think there's still going to be a hybrid approach to whether people are in the office or working from home. So intro Windows 365. Microsoft just announced this a few days ago, and it's really, it's an organiz- it's really a tool for organizations to implement so that their employees can access their cloud-based PCs um, from anywhere. So it's pretty much putting their PCs in the cloud um, and allowing them to access their computers and everything on their computers, their applications, their files from any device. So whether they have an Apple or an Android, you can access anything from the, a non-Windows device, as well as a Windows device, of course. And I got to say, kudos to Microsoft for bridging that gap between Android and Apple, because there is nothing more irritating than the gap between those two. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever tried to send, you know, family photos or any large files from an Android to an Apple device, but it doesn't work out well. So 
I digress, but uh, this is pretty much something that's that's hitting uh, the industry at a good time. And it sounds like they're running it off of their Azure virtual desktop. So I'm curious, Eric, what your experience has been with Azure and kind of really what the difference is, because it sounds like Azure is a tack on to um, existing Microsoft products that helps employees reach uh, their applications on the cloud. Is that accurate? Yeah, uh, sort of. It, it, well, first of all, I'd say that uh, my knowledge of Azure is the difficulty in pronouncing the name. And I, I'm always confused, is it Azure or Azure? And we already are, you know, I, I tend to go back and forth between the two, but I, I have no idea where that word came from. But but nevertheless, that wasn't your question. Your, your question was, uh, what is it? And we talked a little bit about this uh, in last week's episode. We had Brad Feeks from Estes Group on, and he was talking about not just Azure, but just cloud in general. You know, if someone provides a hosting platform or a third party is hosting your applications, how does that work? And, you know, what is what, what exactly is the cloud and what are all the different components of it? And we did talk a bit about Azure. And, you know, one of the things we talked about is how Azure is really a third party hosting provider, even though now what you're talking about is sort of in the context of Microsoft products. Really, Azure is a broader uh, platform than that. So it's it's something that any anyone that has an application that they want to host in the cloud could use Azure to host that and use that as your mechanism to, to access the application and the data and all the stuff that goes with that. So in this case, though, they're talking about their own Microsoft products and providing a platform to deliver that via the cloud, via, via Azure. So um, that it sounds like they're just, they're taking, you know, their product suite and providing a, a way to deliver that, a different way to deliver that to customers than they have in the past using using their own Azure as a way to do that. Right. And it sounds like the pain point with Azure is the, the ability to run multiple desktops through Azure being complex, whereas with Windows 365, it's designed to alleviate that complex, complexity a little bit more. Even though, I mean, with that said, 365 is is fully reliant on Azure's cloud infrastructure to operate. So it's really just kind of expanding on Azure's abilities. Um, and I'm curious, I mean, you said Azure can be used with any technology, really, it sounds like. So with the introduction of Windows 365 and kind of taking that one step further, is that something that you're seeing many companies starting to do or is Microsoft pioneering uh, this push a little bit? I think they're definitely accelerating the push. It's it's already been sort of percolating and organizations are, are starting to uh, warm up to the idea of of the cloud. And, and when I say warm up to the idea of the cloud, I think everyone's open to it. Most organizations are open, open to it in some capacity, but I think their knowledge and adoption of cloud is somewhat limited at, for the time being. So they're, they're, most organizations we work with, for example, are focused on how do we get our applications, our enterprise applications out of our um, on-prem environment into the cloud. And that could be just from buying a new ERP system that's hosted in the cloud. And, you know, that's their definition of cloud adoption. But what Microsoft is doing here is is going deeper into the organization at, at a more fundamental level to bring, you know, core, really core applications, desktop applications, not not necessarily enterprise wide, but just individual applications that individuals would historically use on their desktop or laptop. Now they're, they're it sounds like they're, they're moving that to the cloud. So 
I think it's really accelerating a trend that was already starting. And I think it's been a bit superficial, the adoption of cloud, but Microsoft is really taking it down to another layer within the organization from what I can tell. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious. I mean, they're, it's brand new, right? They just released it. So do you think it's going to stick? Is it a tool that's, that's needed right now? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because I don't know that it matters what I think. I think, I think what's going to, what ends up happening is uh, the vendors just have so much uh, leverage in this discussion, you know, they, you know, whether you like it or not, Microsoft is clearly moving to the cloud. And at some point it'll be a discussion of if you want to use their products, it's going to be in the cloud. So do you want to use their products or not? So I don't think it's necessarily a matter of, you know, whether or not I I want it or I think it will. I, I think what will happen is Microsoft, just like we've seen with a lot of the enterprise vendors like Oracle and SAP and, and, and Microsoft themselves with Dynamics 365 on the ERP side, so many of those vendors are sort of forcing the, the, the shift to the cloud. So whether you like it or not, that's just sort of where they're going. And at some point you, you risk being obsolete if you don't, you know, if you don't follow, follow along and, you know, like we're seeing with ERP systems, um, all the R and D dollars start to go into the cloud solutions and not so much in the on-prem. So at some point that even if you resist the cloud and don't want to do it at some point, you're just going to sort of have to. So I think that's what will happen. I'm not saying that's right or wrong or good or bad, but I think that's probably where, where they'll go just following the lead of other, what other vendors have done. Right. It sounds like, I mean, the skills tipping, like you said, every on-premise solution is coming out with a cloud solution. Um, and it's the balance. I don't know if it's technically balanced right now, but it's going to slightly lean toward the cloud as we go forward. Um, and, and, you know, just how things are going. So with that, even, I would say it matters in a sense, just because it's following the trends, right? I mean, it's all about where is the world going and Microsoft is filling the need before we're fully there. So, yeah. And there's actually another, an, another layer of that just to add to that. Um, there's another force at play here, which is, um, you know, pub these publicly traded companies and the investors that invest in them are in many ways demanding and rewarding for cloud adoption. And what I mean by that is cloud adoption leads to higher margin, steadier revenue in the long term. So that's what investors want. So, you know, there's a heavy economic incentive for all these providers, including Microsoft, to, to move to the cloud. So again, whether you like it or not, whether you agree with the cloud model or not, whether or not that's best for you, I don't know. It, unfortunately, that doesn't matter a lot because the vendors are all going that direction because that's where the money is and the investors are pressuring them to do that. So um, at some point, you know, to use your phrase that the, the scale is tipping and it's going to continue to tip that direction. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, right now, Microsoft is getting spurts of revenue, right? When when a company decides to adopt their enterprise technology and implement you know, MD365, they get a big uh, revenue push, right? But the inconsistency, I'm sure, is not optimal for investors and for, you know, the bottom line of Microsoft. So this is, this is, I think, going to be a monthly, uh, almost like a subscription base from what it sounded like. And that's really what my experience, at least, has been with the cloud. Any cloud solution that I've used has been a month to month um, subscription or you pay the annual fee. So is that, is that how all cloud solutions are? Is it all just a month to month type of, you know, subscribe to our platform? Yeah. Either month to month or more commonly it's quarterly or annually. Um, like you said, but you have a really good point though, which is that, um, it's that, you know, you're, you're sort of locked in at that point. I mean, you can always 
cancel at some point, but it, it becomes in some ways more difficult to cancel when you when you're dependent on a on a cloud provider. Um, so another again another reason why the scale is tipping that way because the money's there, it increases the difficulty of switching platforms, and so they you know the the vendors are going to lock you in a little bit better um, than they they would in an on-premise model. So there's just that's just another force or another layer in this whole thing. Right. Interesting stuff. And I know last week you guys talked a lot about the cloud, so forgive me if I'm being redundant. No, but the cloud is as... large. It's a large cloud, so lots to cover <laughs> in there. What is, is the cloud a greater risk for cybersecurity, just out of curiosity, um, as this desktop model seems to be like there's additional access or risks when it comes to data storage or anything like that? Well, it's it's a. Uh, I think it's more of a perceived risk. I mean, I'm, I guess on one hand you have the fact that you know Microsoft is going to be a much bigger target, and there's probably a lot more attempts to hack or to compromise Microsoft than there is to compromise, for example, third stage consulting. You know, it's a smaller company that isn't on on the radar or the scale of, of Microsoft. So, or you know, anyone listening that works for a smaller mid market company chances are you're not as much of a target as Microsoft is. So on, the, on that side of it, you'd think, okay, well, that there's a risk there, right? But on the other hand, Microsoft has, um, where did I see it? I can't remember if we talked about it in last week's episode or if I read it somewhere, but I, I want to say it's, uh, Microsoft has several hundred, if not over a thousand people that were all they do is work on cybersecurity. That's all they are responsible for is locking down the cybersecurity. And I think it's, there's a number 900 that stands out. I think that was the number I saw was 900 employees. But regardless of what the real number is, it's a lot of people. It's probably a lot more than most people listening have in their IT departments uh, total, let alone just focus on cybersecurity. So you figure world-class cybersecurity and being on the cutting edge of, you know, knowing where the threats are and being able to protect against it, chances are that, you know, Microsoft is going to be, or any, you know, larger cloud provider is going to be on the forefront of that. So it's sort of a, you know, counterbalance there on one hand, yes, they're a bigger target, but on the other hand, they have the resources and the competencies presumably to, um, to, to make sure that doesn't happen. And they have a lot more to lose too. You know, a hosting provider has a lot more to lose if they do experience a breach, that's their entire business model at, at risk. So, um, whereas, you know, a mom and pop shop that gets hacked, yeah, that's a terrible thing. You don't want it to happen, but you know, life can go on in that case, but you know, in many cases that, that can be crippling or devastating to a, to a cloud provider. So not to, not to say the risk is zero because, you know, as, as we're seeing in recent months and years, and we've talked about it on this podcast in the past, there's, there's a lot of cybersecurity breaches and pretty large scale ones. So it's not to say the risk is zero, but, you know, if you've got to mitigate the risk or figure out where your lowest risk is, chances are you're probably in better hands with a, with a hosting provider that does this for a living. And that's their focus. That's a good point. Cause you're really, you're kind of, letting up the control on cybersecurity a little bit. I feel like when you migrate to the cloud, because you're dependent on what the hosting provider is doing for you rather than being able to control it yourself. And in most cases, it's probably good. Cause like you said, having 900 people make sure that your <laughs> uh, data is secure versus, you know, just your team of like five people. If you're a smaller company, you're probably in better hands that way. So that makes sense. Yeah. What about now? Did you in this uh, article or the the stuff you read about this Parisa? Was there any mention of the international aspect of you know certain governments or certain countries won't allow data or applications to be hosted 
you know, outside their countries or they won't allow it to be hosted in certain countries. Is that a consideration or was that anything you saw in your discussions here or your research? No, I did not find that. But are you seeing that? Is there, you know, differing regulations depending on where you're based out of? Well, I'm just thinking like, um, you know, for example, in the United States where we're based, where our headquarters are, um, if you're a government contractor or you're part of the federal government, you can't have uh, data and applications hosted in certain countries. In fact, I, I know, like, for example, China, you can't have uh, your applications or data hosted in China. I think you actually have to have, if I remember correctly, you actually have to have the data and applications hosted in the U.S., which here in this case study that we're talking about with Microsoft, that's that's a moot point because Microsoft is based in the United States. So presumably, you know, they're going to have plenty of cloud hosting options here in the U.S. But I'm just wondering, like in other countries, if they have similar limitations, if that, you know, if that requires Microsoft to have hosting facilities in every country or, you know, I, I'm just curious more than anything, how that would how that would play out internationally, um, depending on local regulations. So, yeah, that's a good question. Maybe something we can look into and yeah. circle back on on the next episode, because I'd be curious to see that. I mean, I imagine Microsoft is they're an international company, so I'm sure they're pretty scattered as is with where their offices are. So I wonder if that would help alleviate it and if they had some strategic approach to picking, you know, where to open up offices. But who knows? Yeah. If anyone's listening that works for Microsoft or knows the answer to that, we'd love to hear your comments below. So <laughs> good deal. Okay. Well, good. Well, thanks for that that overview. That was a, a good, interesting discussion and just further proof that, you know, the vendors are moving pretty aggressively and quickly to the cloud. So that's an interesting model. I'll be curious to see how that plays out for, for Microsoft. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to have uh, Lippy uh, Sarkar. Sorry, I forgot how to pronounce her last name. Lippy Sarkar, who is the um, author of a book called Building a Digital Future. She's going to be on right after a break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Parisa and Kyler and excited for our next guest on the show today. Um, it is the author of a book called Building a Digital Future. I have a copy right here. And this is a really good book that um, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but the parts I've read are very good. And, and what I like about it and just looking through the parts I've read and looking at the table of contents and the, the different chapters in here is that the book is, it covers a lot of a broad perspective, all the different types of um, digital transformation. It covers the people process and technology pieces of it. And even though the book is, uh, the subtitle is a transformational blueprint for innovating with Microsoft 
D365. So it's very targeted to Microsoft customers. Speaking of Microsoft, we just talked about them in the in the previous segment. Um, but however, this, the title is a bit misleading in my opinion, because I think this book actually applies to any sort of ERP or digital transformation. There's there's some Microsoft specific speak in the book, but if you kind of look past some of the nomenclature differences of Microsoft versus other ERP systems, the general concepts are relevant to any sort of uh, transformation. So I'm excited to have Lippy Sarkar on the show. Lippy, thanks for being here. It's my pleasure, Eric, to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Glad to glad to have you here. So maybe just also to get started, tell us a little bit about your background. What do you do? How'd you grow up in the world of digital transformation and in Microsoft Dynamics? Tell us about yourself. Sure. Uh, so I have been in the industry for the last 20 years and I've been working with different kinds of technologies. Um, so recently for the last 10 to 15 years, I would say I have really stick to Dynamics uh, world. Uh, it's, it's because Dynamics uh, to the applications for different kind of industries. So hence, I was working as program director and head of practice of one of the big four, and also now currently working in the consulting world. So predominantly, it's mostly on the consulting side of the world. And as you know, in the consulting, you get to you know work in different industries and sectors, which is brilliant. But at the same time, you can come across a different kind of technologies. Um, and while working with that digital transformation, just you know. Uh, evolved. It's it's about the technology. It's about how you manage the change. So kind of you know starting from the beginning towards the end. So hence digital transformation. Right. Great. So I guess to start, what um, what inspired you to write this book? What what was it you were trying to accomplish? What what motivated you? How'd you get started? So Vinny and I came together, and Vinny and I um, both had different kind of wear different hats in terms of our experience. So when we were talking about the digital transformation, we wanted to write a book from our experience um, and leading through, you know, different kind of implementation, different change aspects that we have gone through, and also combined with the fact that we can bring in different kind of industry leaders into, you know, uh, to contribute in terms of their experiences. Um, so that's where it started. We wanted to give back to the community. We wanted to, you know, share our experiences. And if we can just, as it happens, if you, you strike a chord with someone, somebody has gone to the similar kind of problems, then sharing it and we can save somebody some time in terms of, you know, running their own digital transformation. So hence the passion started from there. And um, it kind of grew into the fact that we tried to interview lots of different industry and sectors to gather their experiences, their challenges. Um, and put together in the book. Great. So it wasn't just necessarily just your ideas or Vinny's ideas. You were also kind of compiling um, the feedback from other executives or other team members that had been through transformations in the past. Absolutely. Living by the principle, as we say, in the change, you have to have a feedback loop. So we tried to start with the book itself. We wrote the book and then we put that in the community because there are lots of different industry leaders who are actually leaving that journey. So not just me, I have done many implementation. So did Vinny, but we wanted to gather uh, the experiences and perception. Um, we are based in UK, but we wanted to gather the experiences across the world. So, and it's a culture as change, basically. So we wanted to gather all the perspectives and put that into the book. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's that's pretty cool. So it's, it goes well beyond even just your own experience. It's looking at others' others' experiences as well, which is great. Uh, so I, you sort of answered this question um, a bit in in what you just said, but. In general, in addition to interviewing these uh, other you know peers throughout the world and other people that had been through this sort of transformation, but how did you 
how did you um, identify what you consider the best practices or the lessons that you shared? I mean, was it based on just the most common patterns or themes you saw, or was there some sort of science to it, or is it just more a, a gathering of qualitative data that you you sort of distilled down into the, the findings you have in the book? It's a great question. And in terms of best practices, obviously, uh, it depends on which country you are leading and which country you're having the digital transformation. So we try to include that perspective to say that if you have like, even within the team, now it is not, uh, and with, uh, you know, with pandemic, you are working with team across the different countries. So, so you have to take that culture aspect, you have to understand people. So that is one element that we have taken. And in terms of best practices, I have um, been into the industry for a certain amount of time. So uh, based on the experiences that I have gathered and also combined with the fact that what would be, what are the normal pitfalls that you have to come across, that's a gotcha. So what you would take into consideration while you start from the digital transformation from day one or even before day one, because you have to prepare your organization, you have to prepare your team, you have to identify where the key drivers are for the change and what are the benefits that you're delivering. So all this combined together. So I would say, yes. Um, so it's a, it's a qualitative data. It's a perception based on different industry thought leaders. And while reading through the book, you would find a natural, you know, ways of the key nuggets that you have takeaways from the book. So has combined all those implemented it together. Right. Right. So as you're doing this research and as you were talking to other transformation teams and trying to gather their lessons and best practices and you're combining it with your own knowledge and understanding were there any um what, what were some of the findings that you found most interesting or, or what did you learn along the way as you were writing this book that maybe you didn't already know uh so one of the thing is that people have a different perspective about change so that that's kind of given we wanted to expand into a little bit more i've written a chapter on uh, the chapter four covers a lot about a different kind of areas that you need to focus on one is a strategic shift where you identify the you know the key drivers then you have to focus on the people uh, culture shift where you always say that the culture uh, and this is a famous term coined by peter Drucker, culture is strategy on breakfast so we wanted to break it down further and also bring in the experiences of Potter from the academic perspective and also implement that from the um, you know the uh, the strategic view and executing those changes. So what are the key change, uh, key elements that comes across? Um, so the best finding, I would say the change element and also the when we start the journey, the benefits realization, that is one of the key factors that is always in the business case. But whether we are tracking the benefit realization, that's another key thing that we need to focus on uh, and we need to get better on. Um, whether you are doing the digital transformation with the people, along with the people, but we, if we have to get moderate about understanding the and the measure, measuring the business benefits, really. Right. And so that is a key finding. I find it quite often mistaken or quite often forgotten or not even polished or updated. So we have to have that feedback loop continuously to fill that gap, really. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I'm always fascinated by how, how many organizations will spend so much time and money and heartburn on, on these transformations to get to go live. But then they don't spend that little bit of extra time to sort of optimize and fine tune and get the value out of the, the implementation. Why is that? Why do you think that so many organizations miss out on the benefits realization side as well as the, the organizational change or the human side that, that you talked about? 
from the findings, I would say there are often uh, when we start the program, there are often a focus around to what exactly we are targeting, what we are focusing on. There is a lot of energy in while we are starting. But during the rigor of, you know, the governance and during the rigor of regular hitting the milestone, it is forgotten about, you know, the, the benefits that we need to track towards the end and how much of time it's going to take um, preparing the organization, preparing the time, because most of the time its energy is mostly focused around go live and also hitting the plan, hitting the milestone. Um, and the reason it is forgotten, it's also about the people and technology. People might be, you know, very busy with those kind of key activities that which is having major milestone driven activities. So, yeah, from my perspective, I would say it's a people driven uh, something we need to do around the culture and the people mindset. That is something to be in the agenda. Maybe the, it's not in the agenda currently in the, at this point in time. Every time we talk about digital transformation it's mostly three things that comes into play is about how, what is a plan, how you're delivering, when you're delivering. And uh, also about the change uh, element and some aspect is also about when it is going live, what is the support model looks like. Uh, I think the projects finish if, because the digital transformation is seen as a project in certain cases and seen as a program. So start to finish, but uh, the benefit realization and tracking the business is mostly falls under the business element. It's not about who is delivering um, or the delivery partner. So it depends on the organization who are tracking or the team who are tracking the benefits. Right, right. It seems like, you know, with, with clients we're involved with, it seems like a lot of times you you have to your point you you have all this focus on milestones and delivery and there's so much pressure and then you get to the go live and i think everyone just sort of sighs a, a breath of uh, relief um, that they finally cross the finish line and they just want to go back to their day jobs you know to their real jobs and sort of not forget about the project but just move on and they don't stay that extra time to, to really fine-tune it and then on the change management side it also seems like the change management is the one thing you can't see or touch or feel and an implementation like this, you, you can see the software, you can see if it's broken or not working, you can see the data, you can see even the business processes, you can visualize it, but the human part is just so hard for people to grasp or understand. Did you come across any findings or lessons of, of you know, people that maybe handled change management better than others and what they saw differently or how they recognized the need for change management versus organizations that maybe didn't recognize that need? This is a vast subject. I mean, obviously change is such a big element. Sometimes we, it is often mistaken and sometimes it is often not given the consideration that it should have. Um, if it is a large organization, then change is obviously taken into consideration. If it is a small and medium sized uh, implementation or digital transformation, then it's mostly about saving the cost. Um, so hence, there is a balance of which we need to strike, bringing the change in even if it is a small or medium. Um, and then whoever is delivering the change in aspect of, you know, after the project has been delivered, it's also about the governance, how we are playing the governance is uh, the closing the project is not about going live, setting on all the support model and then close the project to learn the program, learn the benefits, learn the you know lessons learned and all of those kind of governance things that we talk about and then finishes the project. But if you have to really track the benefits, then you have to have that kind of project live for at least for three months or six months. But sometimes we are taken into consideration that the project lifetime, what is the project lifetime that we have to decide whether it starts from the beginning and finishes when the project go live or after one month of go live, or does it still uh, stay current in terms of, you know, uh, mobilizing a small amount of team to focus on the fact that 
how they are tracking what is the key benefits that they are me measuring after it has gone live. Otherwise, the user adoption will never kick in, even after one year of the project gone live. Right, right. Now, that's interesting. Um, and by the way, uh, for those of you watching live on LinkedIn, we have, we have a decent turnout here on LinkedIn. Um, feel free to drop questions that you have for Lippy. Um, any, the good news is this is such a broad topic. Your book covers so much ground. We can really talk about anything we want as it relates to digital transformation, whether it's absolutely the human side, like we're talking about now, we can get into technology, we can get into processes, program management, strategy, whatever the case may be. Um, and by the way, just uh, so you know, Lippy, we have a pretty global audience here uh, today, just some of the a sampling of some of the um, locations of some of the people listening here. Um, obviously, London and UK, we have a couple people from there, Egypt, Belgium, Saudi Arabia. Um, and so we've got a, a pretty global audience here today. And I suspect there's probably some people in the United States as well, given the, the time of day here. So um, feel free to drop questions in the comment box uh, on whatever platform you're watching this on. And we'd love to love to get those questions. So just back to you know my list here, and I'll keep going until um, until we get uh, some questions here from the audience. But if you had to summarize, you know, maybe you've already alluded to some of this, but if you had to summarize some of the keys to transformation success, what would you say are sort of the top three or five things that teams really need to get right if they're going to be successful in this sort of a project? Uh, first, to start with, I mean, get your drivers of change correctly um, because you need to identify what are the change drivers, why you need to move from A to B. It, it can depend on, with pandemic, there might be a number of other factors. Um, it's either to be disrupted or to be disrupted, you have to have a plan already. And then once you have identified the change drivers, then where do you want to be, whether it's a short time, medium term or long term? Um, then once you have identified the change, once you have decided where you want to go with, um, have that sponsorship from leadership team. I think that is also sometimes it's forgotten whether it's a bottom up approach or whether it's a top down. So there is again, need to have a balance uh, between, it has to be top down because some of the sponsorship need to be there and also need to bottom up because we need to hear about how the change is impacting the business. So we need to have that feedback loop ready and we have to often go through that feedback process. And if we need to change the plan, if we need to you know, understand where things are moving, we have to have that leeway to move around. Um, that, that is one of the key thing. Uh, we have tried to explain that in the first part of the book about identifying, defining the digital transformation. Sometimes it's mistaken about what it is not. Like it's, it's not a project as I keep on saying that digital transformation has to be you know, thought through from including the people process and technology. Then the next element is about uh, the often mistake that we have seen, like people try to do an organization, try to build everything. If it is decided about a one year digital transformation program, people try to bring all the changes in one year of the program. Um, and what happens with that is that people get and the benefit, uh, the organization get change fatigued. So again, there's supposed to be some kind, there need to be some kind of balance in between bringing in all kind of changes that we are bringing in one year program. And we have to build a continuous improvement to us after we have gone live, after we have delivered one element of the project, even if it is a very bare minimum, organization teams and everyone need to get used to the system. So once they have got there, I think the user adoption can kick in very high, but without that, the user adoption uh, is really impacted. Right, right. And then maybe I'll ask you the flip side of that. And, and maybe the 
your response is similar or maybe it's different, but what, what do you see as the key reasons why transformations fail? You know, of the ones of the teams that you talk to that either struggled considerably, or maybe they just completely failed in their, their implementations. What, what are some of the key reasons why, or the most common reasons why that is in your findings? I think it's a fear of change. Sometimes it's not well perceived as a change curve. You would have to have that em employees and workforce working towards the transformation um, at the beginning, obviously, if, if the vision and the communication is not very clear, it's not very clear about what we are going to do. And then the fear can, I mean, it, it often jeopardize the, you know, the transformation program. So from, from why it fails is also the other other factors could be related to change. The change has not been properly uh, perceived through and has not been properly delivered. Um, Often it's also about the processes. I mean, how many processes are we trying to streamline? Are we trying to streamline the processes or are we trying to, you know, trying to bring all the features and benefits together and try to amalgamate that in year one program? So it's, it's, it has to be a balance between everything and the work. We are also try to take the balance in terms of Identify the key strengths and capabilities within the organization. You might be having the workforce who are perfectly capable of delivering certain areas. They have got the knowledge and experience about the processes. So involving them from day one, keeping that up to date, keeping that up to, you know, uh, with all the details and where the things are moving. Right. Gotcha. Okay. I don't know whether that that's the same experience you have, Eric, but uh, that's a finding, I think, uh, from, from our book. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's similar. I mean, those are some good ones. The problems are the, the problem is that there's so many different reasons why companies fail, but the, the good news, bad news is that usually that those patterns are, are predictable, even though it's a lot of things that can contribute to yeah. failure. Uh, but a lot of times it seems like it, this, uh, this ties into some of what you're talking about. A lot of times I found that it's misalignment. You know, if you, if you as a team, uh, for example, a lot of the things you just described, you know, do we want incremental, improvements to our processes? Are we looking to improve processes? Are we trying to build in best practices from the software? Um, that, for example, is a significant decision that significantly affects your strategy and your plan. But if you're not as if you as a team are not aligned on what that direction is, that creates that creates sort of a, a tension in the project. And that Absolutely. It creates a lot of headwinds that are very hard to overcome. Yeah. So I think a lot of it. I've seen the other thing I would like to say, which I missed out earlier. People try to bring in their old knowledge, what they have worked with previously. And if we don't set the guiding principles from the very beginning, uh, then there is often misalignment in terms of people bringing their own experiences of what they have worked with. Yeah. Okay, great discussion. Thanks, Lippy. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more discussion. I'm going to ask you some more questions about your book. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com.
Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Lippy Sarkar, the author of Building a Digital Future, and want to jump back into some more questions I have for you. Yeah, absolutely. And and a lot of times too, um, you know, we'll tell clients that even if you don't have a perfect answer, even if you you don't have a perfect strategy, and even if there are significant flaws in your strategy, if you're at least aligned as a team and you're you're going the same direction, then that's oftentimes more powerful than getting a perfect strategy in place but not being able to execute it because it seems like a lot of organizations and strategy is a need to be like thought through over the period of time and it has to be an iterative approach in terms of talking about even if it is very sensitive risk or issues the team should be empowered and open to talk about those kinds of sensitive risk and issues right absolutely um so we're starting to get some questions here on linkedin so i'll, I'll pull a couple here as, as we're talking um, so this is from, this question is from uh, Marcus. I'm not sure where Marcus is. It's Marcus Clay. Um, he asks, what are the symptoms that a company needs to look out for, for the leaders to look at digital transformation as a possible solution? So I guess the question is more, how do you know if it's time or what symptoms in your business should you look for to determine whether or not you should even consider a digital transformation? That's a great question, Marcus. Uh, thank you for your question. Um, the symptoms, I think, if, if the digital transformation, firstly, we need to identify if there is a basic reason of change. Uh, if, we, if we have not identified what are the key drivers of change, if people often get, you know, the digital transformation roadmap might not be set correctly. So first, you need to identify the key drivers of change. And then the leadership team, whether they have got any experience of digital transformation they have done earlier, or, I mean, depending on any technology, but the digital transformation comes with, you know, the bringing everything together and have that sponsorship within leadership team. Without the sponsorship and leadership team, it, it becomes very difficult because change is enormous. Uh, depending on the size of the organization, it could be enormous and complex. So how do you break out that complexity? So you have to have that kind of leadership sponsor sponsorship. And then the next thing is about, also about the symptoms of what is the culture within your organization. You need to think about the culture within the organization, whether it's an open culture, whether you talk about any kind of sensitive things. Um, if it is not, then you might have to bring in some expertise and people who can actually look into it because you have to have that feedback loop always coming through uh, because you are doing the change uh, to the people, but with the people and for the people. So you have to have that balance doing, uh, balance act really to get there. Right. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That and, would be the top one, but there are enormous and different kind of symptoms. Always have to keep a you know, check about whether people are doing fine um, with empathy and uh, listening to, uh, to the people who are being regularly on the forefront of delivering the change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It seems like getting a, an organization ready for transformation, let's just say you have some some people within the organization that are leading the charge that recognize the need or the opportunity to go through a digital transformation, but the rest of the organization is not on board with that yet. It's almost like you have to, yeah. you have to start a spark somehow you, you, you spark a fire and you've got to spread that urgency and spread that recognized need um, rather than just sort of forcing a digital transformation and saying, okay, we're going to go pick us new software and a system integrator and we're, we're just going to start implementing it. And then we'll worry about change management later. A lot of times you, you have to focus more, you know, ahead of time, trying to build that alignment and focus and momentum behind the, the purpose and the need for, for transformation. If you spend more time doing that, then you build up that momentum. Then by the time you get into actually selecting and implementing software, then it becomes a little bit easier. It's not easy, but it's easier 
than if you didn't do that. Absolutely. And it is never going to be easy, but you can talk about those kind of problems and challenges openly and try to mitigate them. Even if it is there is no solution, at least you know that there is no solution and you have discussed about it and you might have to park those items for later for future. But at least it, it encourages and uh, empowers the employee and the team to talk about that kind of things openly. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, how about this? This is from Steve um, from Australia, e either Australia or New Zealand. I'm not sure which one. He says both on his uh, profile here. But um, how important is change management with getting all the right stakeholders on board with the various projects? So perhaps if there's competing priorities or other, you know, day-to-day -day business or operational needs, how do you, how do you, how does change management enable getting those stakeholders on board? Um, um, change management should be uh, communicating with everyone, really, to start with, uh, to communicate with, with the vision and the mission and also about the roadmap. And it is a continuous communication that needs to happen because there is some kind of dependency which might be related to some other project or some other team or some other, you know, the workforce that you're working with. So hence, change management need to be involved with all the business, even if it is, we can assume that even if it is not impacting directly on one particular business, but it's worth having that conversation to let them know that this is coming. And in future, if they have to, you know, it, they might be aware of things. So if, if there is any kind of impediment or uh, issues that, and or there is a dependency, there is a direct line to feed in. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um... Let's see. So there, we have a question here on Crowdcast. Actually, I'll, I'll shift gears here and go to, to go to Crowdcast. And that okay. question is: uh, This is from Brad, um, and his question is: To what degree? And actually, this is our, our guest from last week's live stream, by the way, that's asking this question. So, Brad, I hope you, you don't mind that I'm calling you out. Um, but his, his question is: To what degree does the leadership style of the organization impact the culture of the organization as it relates to change management? Can changes in leadership style produce positive cultural changes that will better support digital transformation? Absolutely. Uh, so it, it is, as I was referring to earlier, so digital transformation, we need some sponsorship from the top um, C-suite level executives. And if the culture of leadership team is quite close culture, then you might not be encouraged to talk about any kind of sensitive risk or issues. But if there is a culture, quite an open culture, then you would be encouraged to talk about those risks and issues impacting on the business or impacting on the digital transformation roadmap. Um, and you might find any mitigation, you might find a solution to it. Um, without the sponsorship, it can be very difficult, uh, you know, to come up uh, and to and it is very difficult to even to assume that it is not going to be complex, even if it is for medium or small organization. I have seen digital transformation where even you get the resistance, but you have to break the resistance. You make that you need to win those people in so that they know what exactly what benefit are you delivering for them. So even uh, even if it is like very simple kind of benefit, but you, they need to know what benefit you're delivering for them. So it's very and it's really encouraging to have that leadership team on board and you have that direct link and direct communication, having that conversation going regularly. Yeah. Yeah. And does I, that answer your question, Brad? Yeah. He'll have to let us know if we, if we didn't, or if, if maybe as a follow-up yeah. or anyone else has a follow-up question to build on that. Um, it, it seems like there's also, um, there's also the, the dynamic of, of how, you know, we talk about culture and leadership style and how leadership affects culture. That was sort of the uh, part of the question. But it, it also seems like 
people don't often recognize how technology can impact the organ or impact the culture as well. Um, so for example, you know, because you, you focus on Microsoft Dynamics 365, for example, flexible product, there's a lot of, uh, flexibility to it when you compare it to like an SAP or, or, uh, you know, some of the other systems in the market. So how does that, you know, the technology itself, how does, how have you seen technology infuse changes to the culture and, and how, what should we be mindful of as we're, as we're navigating those that's, changes? That's, that's really a great question, Eric, because uh, yes, and hence we have written a book on Dynamics because I have seen particularly the Dynamics has got the capabilities built around the different kind of industries and sectors. And even in Microsoft, you have got those kind of tools which helps the transparency and which helps build an open culture. Um, now, in terms of other, other technology, you can use the similar kind of tools like DevOps is one of the tools where you can where you empower and encourage other people to take decisions and have that transparency going on. But with other other technology where it is like you have to have lots of customization that need to be built in versus where the Dynamics 365 comes with a full switch of things where you need minimum configuration and minimum customization, but can deliver the best efficiency for your organization or optimization for the organization. I think over the period of time, if we take for other technology, I've worked with SAP, I've worked with Oracle in the past, but if we take those kind of technology, I think it's also enormous amount of customization that need to be built in, and it increases the complexity, increases the complexity within the build, within the technology, and also the stakeholders, because you have to always keep, everyone need to be on top of what is going on, and after a certain period of time, might be the business has changed or there might be a need of something completely different, which means that you have to throw away those customization and build something new. And it can grow the complexity around that. So yes, I, so the technology also plays a part, definitely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, just a more of a comment here that, that builds on a, a comment you made earlier, Lippy. Um, this is from Sudhakar. And he says, hi, Eric, I feel the team as a whole mostly doesn't go toward one particular point or goal. That's probably that's the problem in tech projects, and you know, it sort of gets back to that whole concept of alignment yeah, and plan absolutely. and strategy. Yeah. Um, okay, we have more people joining us from Australia, India, Zambia, um, Montreal, Canada, United States, Saudi Arabia. So we have a lot of a lot of new attendees joining from throughout the world. Um, so here's a maybe a comment that I'd be curious to get your your thoughts on, uh, Lippy. And this is from Praveen, and he says more than communication. It needs implementation, even if you need to make some tough decisions to make the change viable. So let me rephrase that or see if I can make sure I understand more than communication. You need to implement. Well, let's try that. You need to implement well, even if you need to make some tough decisions to make the changes viable. So what are some of those maybe, you know, tough in addition to communicating the changes, you know, what are some of those tough decisions that need to be made or what are some examples of tough decisions that you've seen organizations have to make as part of their absolutely trip? yeah uh, so tough decision need to be made the communication is part of you know um, ensuring that the tough decisions have been discussed or taken or communicated uh, so tough decision could be related to uh, you know how many people are going to be the future proof of you know the impact assessment of people because it will be new ways of working how many people are really catered for taking that decision or being in that journey, because you might, if you see the resistance, if people are not accepting about the new ways of working, that might be a, 
challenging situation to deliver or you know being in that whole journey so the decision will be related to the fact that redeployment of the existing workforce you definitely want to take the workforce along with you if they somehow lose interest or not getting uh, you know adoption not getting the user adoption or not seeing still some challenges you can openly discuss about the challenges but there might be still some challenges that you cannot reach or you cannot mitigate, then the tough decision need to be made around the people. Um, the tough decision is also around the processes because uh, there is often seen that people try to provide the requirements in the form of what they have done in the old world. Um, because there are so many workarounds, it is not about the best practice or the efficiency. It's also about people get used to the ways of how they are working currently. So you need to make a tough decision and challenge those requirements always to say that this is whichever product you're using. So if you have a best practice around that particular product, you have to challenge the requirement and make some tough decisions around it. Then you have to make a tough decisions around the governance also, which is ongoing, which is about teams, which is about processes, which is about the technology, because you cannot go on customizing the whole product and build it completely a new different product. So you have to go with the product and hence dynamics comes in a really good way because you don't have to do and it is governed because if you have to stay current with the product, it's better to have less customization and also with the managed, managed customization, which can be managed and it doesn't break the system when once you uh, once a product is upgraded. So you need to make tough decisions around processes, around the product, around people, and around data, because you might be data is a big asset within the organization. Um, how much of data you are taking from the legacy? What is good data looks like? And how many times you are actually taking on ownership of, you know, governing and putting some data governance around it. So all those elements need to be factored in as part of governance. Yeah. Yeah. I think hearing you speak, it, it reminds me or, or triggers a thought that a, a lot of, I think a lot of organizations and teams underestimate how many hard decisions you have to make for, for a lot of different things. You know, you talk about governance yeah. and business processes, you take business processes, for example, just defining what you want your processes to be and what you as an organization want to be when you grow up, that alone entails a, a, yeah. a lot of tough decisions because it's inevitable that you're not going to get a unanimous agreement that this is how our process should look. And the leader, the leader leaders within the organization are going to have to make the decision that yes, this is how we're going to operate. And I know, Lippy, you may not be happy about it and, you know, but this is what we're doing and this is what it's going to look like. And here's what it means to you, Lippy. And now we talk about how to transition you and why we're doing the process this way. So, you know, you, you want to get as much buy-in as you can, but you're never going to get hundred percent buy-in and there's times where you Absolutely. just have to. You cannot make everyone happy, but you have to make that decision for the greater good in terms of what is the decision that we are going to go ahead with. Yeah. 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 And you just think about even just walking through a basic process workflow um, you know, that, that can lead to a lot of, a, a lot of tough decisions, but you know, what's interesting about this question, uh, that Praveen asks is, you know, let's talk about maybe for a second, what happens if you don't make those tough decisions and you sort of just, you know, you, for a lot of flat organizations that, that operate as more of a, uh, a democracy and they don't want to be top, they're almost afraid of being top down <clears throat> and control. So they, they, yep. a lot of organizations say, well, we're just not going to make those tough decisions and we're going to let the you know, let the people, let the frontline people sort of define what this is going to look like. What is that? I mean, that can lead to a lot of problems. Maybe what are some of the things you see or have you seen that 
dynamic. I have seen that. If you do not make the tough decision up front, you are going to leave with those kind of problems later on. You have to make those tough decisions later on, but it's in a much more complex situation where you are making those tough decisions. So it's better to make those tough decisions much earlier on, communicate it clearly so that you don't actually fall in the part of, you know, making that tough decision later on where you have already burned the budget, you have already lost the time, and now it's also about, you know, where, where it is going. So it, taking a different direction. So it's worth taking those tough decisions up front. Yeah. Yeah. And you think of the the things that come out of not making decisions. For example, uh, customization. You know, a lot of times people blame customization for the failure of their projects. And it could be that yeah. the customization has created risks and problems. But if you really dig deep, you find that, well, maybe it was because you didn't make the tough decision that we're not going to customize or we're going to simplify our process and use the technology a certain way. You didn't make that tough decision. So then you get um, overpowered by people that don't want to change or that have a different vision of what they think the process should look like. And so that leads to customization. Absolutely. Yeah. Other point I was going to touch upon since you mentioned about it, say, if, if you are in a global rollout and let's take an example of multiple countries you are rolling out and if you don't have a streamlined process um, and every country might be talking over each other where you have like, you know, <laughs> the politics might be around there and you have to go by one direction. But how do you maintain with all the kind of nuances within the product to say they you're not taking upfront decisions about you know streamlining the process, which is completely understand because yeah, I might have to go with that. But that means you are spending more supporting the product, which is which comes later. So whichever way you have to take the decision and you have to make that judgment of cost effectiveness, uh, either you're doing it upfront or maybe later supporting the product. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, good, but there's a, a lot more questions coming in. So I'll, I'll take some more audience questions here. Um, uh, Hafid from Oman says the devil is in the details. So that's his, his commenter's contribution to, <laughs> to, your, to our Absolutely. conversation. Yeah. I totally agree with. Um, and then uh, let's see here. This I think this one might be a specific question to Microsoft D365. Um, what is your, this is from uh, Satnam. I'm not sure where she's from, but um, Satnam asks, what is your experience around implementing a D365 solution when choosing whether a single instance versus multi-instance model for global transformation. What are the pros and cons of each? It's a great question. Uh, it, yeah, it was. It relates to the previously what we were discussing about the processes, whether you're having, um, you know, the streamlining processes across all the countries, or you're having multiple different kind of variation across different countries. Then single instance, uh, also it's also about you know how much you deployment, whether you want to go with the deployment of one big bank deployment across all the countries, or you want to take it as a time factor as well. You have to bring that in, whether you want to you actually some countries might not be prepared to go for a, a one time global rollout. So then you have to take that into into consideration and then you have to plan that multiple instance um, versus single instance kind of decision. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's definitely pros and cons to each. And, you know, I, I think with that decision and actually any of these decisions we've been talking about, it, it seems like I, th I think people need to recognize that there is no easy answer. A lot of these decisions are going to be more difficult than you think. And even the right answer is going to have problems or potential risks that go along with that. So it's a matter of understanding yeah. that the risk that just make. if you go single instance, there's risk. If you go with uh, multi-instance, there's risk there too. It's just a matter of which risk yeah. is more palatable to the organization. Absolutely. It's measuring the risk again, the time factor against the deployment. Yeah. 
Okay, great discussion. Thanks, Lippy. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more discussion. I'm going to ask you some more questions about your book. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Lippy Sarkar, the author of Building a Digital Future, and want to jump back into some more questions I have for you. And then here's a here's an interesting uh, another question from Praveen, and he asks um, uh, why any application is not why would any application not be flexible enough to cover business changes? Technology must be changed per the business, not the other way around. So I think it's asking the question of the whole you know do we change our business or we change change the technology? Is it both? Yeah. I mean, how do you, how do you how do you navigate that decision or that continuum? I. Whether you want, it's a great question, uh, Praveen. So yeah, I really like the idea of how much you can bring the balance in between technology and business change. Um, it changes uh, how many people are involved, um, how many different departments are involved, how many different kind of, you know, the business process changes you are bringing in. So you have to factor that in while you are in assessing the impact of change to any organization. Versus technology, if you go by the technology kind of route, that means you are doing to people, you're actually pushing the changes to people. They are not accepting the change. Um, so I think there need to be a balance here. Sometimes with Dynamics 365, with the Microsoft product, we know that sometimes it's quite easy. But And if you're into Dynamics, you know that how easily it can work, but it's not and quite intuitive. So that's what um, the change element need to implement that it is quite intuitive. You don't have to have a lot of training to actually use the system. Um, but little bit of training, you can go there. But it's also about whether people have been change fatigue or not with a different kind of other transformation programs running in parallel. So you have to measure all this while measuring the change impact. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think that's a great example of a, of a decision that you need to think carefully through and have full alignment on because I think it it's that's a that may seem like a small detail that executives and other leaders may want to push down to the project team um, without having a clear vision and if you don't have alignment and expectations aren't aligned on what those trade-offs are and what the decision is then you run into that's where you run into problems later on Absolutely. Um, maybe as a follow-up question then so and this is my question just to be candid I'm tr I'll try not mm -hmm. to hog the questions here but just as a follow-up, what, what have you seen work for getting executives aligned, especially if executives think that this is an IT project? So let's just say I'm, I'm a CEO and I've got an executive team that says, Lippy's got this under control. I don't care if it's multi-instance or single instance. I don't care if we change, or, or maybe I might think, well, I'm not going to change the, the technology. So let's just use vanilla off-the-shelf software and just go figure it out. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you help me better understand that 
I need, there's more to it than that. And there's risks and there's decisions that need to be made. How do you, how have you found it to work to engage, you know, key executives and stakeholders in that way? Uh, one is about the steerco meeting where you have all the board members come together. So it's not just one person against their other person who's actually delivering the leading the digital transformation. It's bringing everyone's perspective together. So as a CEO, you might think that every, everything is un, under control, but I need to have that kind of relationship with the CEO to have that kind of sensitive information and discuss that this is going maybe pair shape. This is something there are more to it. It's not meeting the eye maybe right now, but I should be able to flag those kind of risks up so that have that open discussion rather than leaving it for later or brushing it under the carpet completely. Um, I prefer to have that discussion with and with that kind of relationship also happening between the executive, the sponsors and different department, maybe head of, you know, the head of department, head of country, head of national region. But they need to have kind of that kind of synergy because also sometimes you see that one region might be having very prominent and very upfront with kind of requirements and very vocal about the requirements. The other country might not, but when you're actually doing the change and if it is similar kind of change and one process, then you're actually delivering the change to everyone, whether they are receptive or they are accepting all these kind of changes. So if there is no synergy, if they are not brought in, if they don't understand the you know, the wider aspect, then it is leading to, and it's misleading in that case. So hence, always bring that conversation, even if you think that it is not, it is not risky at this point in time, but keeping up to date information of what is happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, good. Well, um, here's a, here's a follow up question to the, uh, the instance, the single instance issue. And this is from Satnam again. Um, and she asked, have you experienced latency issues and what's been the approach to resolve it? Uh, that's a little bit technical question. for me, so me <laughs> I will dodge it <laughs> for yes. the time being. But that's why I was quiet because yes, I had no idea what to say to that. So I was yeah, I was yeah. To answer. <laughs> okay. I will leave that for my solution architect team to come back to it. Yeah. Yeah. But happy to take that question. If you need to, you know, have some thoughts and guidance, happy to come back to you. Yeah, and this is just a um, just so you know further context of the question. She also asks, "Have you used third-party applications uh, to improve latency? Can Microsoft use mirroring to alleviate latency where the database servers are located at a distance?" And that's way over my head. You know, as far as I'm not an architect at all, so I, I don't have a good answer for that. <laughs> I haven't I haven't used third-party uh, for the latency issues. Uh, that's quite clear. But there is a, a penetration testing. Sometimes you need to do those kind of penetration testing where you need to involve a third-party. That's what I can say. And there are different kind of you know depending on different kind of testing latency issues, they might be able to have that upfront. And if you need to resolve. Those kind of issues change your code. You might be able to do that based on the best guidance and practices provided both by those kind of testing that comes out as an outcome. Right, and and uh, I just want to congratulate Satnam because she is the first person that has stumped both myself and the guest on a question that you want to. <laughs> Usually, at least one of us could sort of piece together an answer, but uh, that's the Absolutely. first one where uh, I'm at a loss. So, uh, thank you, Satnam. Congratulations, you you win the challenge of uh, stumping both both uh, people on the show here. Um, so another question from um, Praveen again is everyone everyone knows what change what to change or implement what causes failure during digital journey I have seen it equally from customer and the SI so I think the question is um, you know whose fault is it maybe that's another way to simplify the question is whose fault is it when there's failure is it is it the implementing company or is it the SI or the person you know the outside company that's implementing the technology. 
That's a great question. And um, I wish I could dodge this kind of question because uh, <laughs> it's a quite a tricky question to answer. Uh, but to be honest, um, that's really a great question because uh, it's nobody's fault or it's also everybody's fault. Because if you have not discussed about any kind of risk and if you have not flagged the risk from the SI's perspective, I would say if the SI have not come up with the risk and have discussed about the key risk that might come up in future, um, then it's SI's fault. But also about if the SI has discussed that no decision has been made and uh, it, is, it has been forgotten, then it's all the, also the organization from the organization point of view, it's organization's fault. So I'm, 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 from my mindset, I would say, and that's what the book is also talking about, it's not about fault. We are not in the blame game culture. It's more about talk about those kind of issues openly and try to mitigate this risk much upfront. And even if you, some, some issues, some risk will still be under if it is an unknown, have that kind of open culture, uh, empower people to talk about that openly and to have some mitigated action mitigation in place whenever you find this, whenever you think that this risk has come up or this issue has come up. So and uh, we should be taking going away from this. I have seen this and uh, it's no fault of, but I've seen this kind of culture sometimes happens when people are saying, oh, this is a size fault. And as I would say, okay, we have talked, discussed about this, but I think we should be equally taking that, you know, responsibility that what we have discussed and document all this kind of decisions that has been made so that we can look forward for it, moving away from it. Continuous improvement will not happen if we try to, you know, be in our box and say that it's not my responsibility. It's your responsibility and, you know, keep on bashing each other really yeah yeah i've been involved in a lot of expert witness cases uh lawsuits where they hire us to be an expert witness to testify you know what went wrong and it's it's fascinating how you know first of all how much finger pointing can happen in these projects it's easy to point fingers at your si or your si to point fingers yeah. at you the organization but i think at the end of the day if i had to simplify it i'd say that if you're part of an internal project team that's implementing or you know managing this transformation just remember it's your project i mean you have to own it even if your SI is giving you advice, sometimes you don't, you don't always have to listen to the SI. I mean, there's a fine line between taking the advice of people that have done this before, but also recognizing it's your business and you have to live with the consequences of whatever it is. So whatever you need to do to be successful, do it. And it may or may not align with what the SI wants you to do. And it's easier said than done because if you haven't been through this before, you don't necessarily know. But the last thing you want to do is just uh, just completely outsource it and say, OK, my SI is going to take care of this for me. They're the experts. Yeah. I don't I'm not going to get too involved. That's the worst thing you can do. So I, I think the key advice I would give is just to take ownership. Um, totally so, agree. Yeah. so just to summarize, if 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 uh, just to wrap, maybe wrap up the conversation to if I'm about to start a transformation or I'm in the early stages of this transformation, what three pieces of advice would you give to me? What, what three things should I do to make sure that I set myself up for success to the best of my ability? If you're starting a digital transformation and if you have already identified what are the business case, what are the key drivers of change, then I think you have already done the first exercise of identifying the key change. Then it's more about identifying the delivery partner who can work with you but who can also gel with the culture of the organization. So just have this conversation and see who's the best in the industry or who has worked with, with the past recommendations and, you know, uh, worked in similar kind of time frame. Um, and think about the time frame. Is it, are you too focused about the time frame that these are the things, these are the benefits that you need to deliver within the organization, or it's a more about you have to think about a perspective of change, how many change you can bring in during this time frame. Are you flexible about it? Um, don't go by milestone driven, go by 
how much of change you are actually delivering to your own organization and how can you measure that because with all going on with the pandemic and everybody it's life has taken a completely different direction yes we are very demanding in our day-to-day -day life we are using apps and everything so we are demanding uh, we have become the customers have become very demanding so in terms of bringing all this experience together. So think about how much of change your organization can sustain. So not to think about, yes, it's a one-time project. Let me bring it in. Let me bring one SI and try to build it all together and deliver it in maybe a year, maybe nine months. But is your organization prepared for that? So prepare your organization, understand, uh, identify, assess, and to measure the key internal strengths and capability and see how much you can sustain and what you can go for. Yeah, that's that's good. Good closing advice. So, um, if I didn't already have a copy of this book, and this is I'm trying to show the audience what it looks like. I, I really like this cover, by the way. It's, I don't know why. That's super cool. The the cover there. Where I, I had the good fortune of of you all providing me a complimentary copy, so I appreciate that. But I didn't, so I didn't buy it. Where where can I find this book if I did if I don't already have a copy? You can find that in Amazon Marketplace. You can also buy buy that from Wiley. Um, so you, online, you can just get it. Uh, so Eric, if you can share the link, I can provide you the link, and you can share the link through this. So that's okay. Good. Perfect. Be happy to do that. Well, well, thank you for being here, Lippy. Really appreciate your time, and loved having you on the show. And and it's a great book. I appreciate the, the fact that you're doing that. You and Vinny wrote that book, and again, it's uh it's so relevant. So there are some Microsoft specific things in it, but I'll, but ninety five percent of it, I'd say, is is totally relevant regardless of what technology you're absolutely in. yeah it's my pleasure to talk to you eric and it's not a technical book it's more written from the aspiration that we can help the community we can help anyone who doesn't have uh, who is enrolling on digital transformation journey and also the aspiration is for future students who has not got any experience of digital transformation or even the technology at least they get some great insight from the book and we would like to stay current with the book so to, talking in conversation with you eric and also to, you know, if we can respond to any kind of question that comes through. So great questions. Thank you, everyone, for asking those questions. Well, thank you, Lippy. That was a great conversation. A lot of good stuff there. A lot of good stuff that we could have covered, didn't have time to in today's conversation, but that was a good, good overview. And actually, when we come back from a quick break, Parisa, Kyler, and I are going to talk more about some of the topics that we covered here in that discussion, as well as some of the other topics that uh, she has in her book. So we're going to further unpack and dive into the book when we come back from a quick break we'll be back with more transformation ground control if you are aiming for transformation success turn to third stage consulting group third stages independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies define their roadmaps and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. You can find us every Wednesday, new episodes on YouTube, 
as well as the audio platforms for podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, all that good stuff. Find us every Wednesday with new episodes. So uh, the discussion we just had with Lippy and the book, Building a Digital Future, what are your guys' thoughts? We covered a lot of stuff there, and it was a pretty broad discussion, but what, uh, what are some of your observations or questions coming out of that? She seems amazing. I mean, just her perspective on all things, really all things digital transformation. Like you said, this book is applicable to everything. It's not just software oriented, right? It's not just, you know, focused on Microsoft, but it applies across the board. So it's interesting to hear where all of her findings are are rooted in. You know, you guys talked about it a little bit on you know, where did she get her inspiration from the book? Is it based on, you know, common practices she sees people implement? Or is it based on qualitative data based on her experience? Uh, so I thought that was really interesting, just because, you know, writing a book and consulting, it's, it's, there's a lot of overlap there. So I was curious, Eric, on both your consulting style, and really just the consulting style of third stage as a whole, um, and kind of, you know, I want to go on this tangent to just explore that for a second, because I'm curious on what third stage is consulting and, you know, advising of clients is rooted in. What, where do you get your best practices from and how do you guide your clients when you're sitting at the table with them? Sure. It's a great question. So, you know, over the years, first of all, we, we've done a lot of research on ERP implementations and, um, you know, dating back to my, my previous company, we we had done annual studies that would quantitatively look at, you know, how long implementations were taking and how much they were costing and what some of the common challenges were that CIOs and project teams were facing during those implementations. So a lot of it is grounded in that, that research that we were doing. And it's also based on our implementation experience. And, and, you know, a lot of people out there have implementation experience, so we're not unique in that way, but where we're unique is that we have implementation experience as independent implementation partners. So it may sound like a, you know, like we're splitting hairs, but it's actually a really big deal because we look at it not from a technology first perspective, but more from a business first perspective, more of an agnostic perspective. And those are two very different approaches. And when you come at it from a more agnostic approach or perspective, you tend to see things more clearly and you tend to see alternatives, viable alternatives outside the realm of what you might be thinking, you know, if you're thinking inside the box of one technology. So you know, for example, if I'm a if I were a system integrator or a VAR or reseller of ERP software, and I was hired to implement for you, you know, for any organization, I'm my job is to push as much of my software into your organization as I can, and you're not going to get a clear read on where you know what the pros and cons of that are, or, you know, if that's the right answer or not. If 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 you're just thinking of that one option. So coming at it from the independent perspective allows us to sort of th- see the warts and the dark side and be able to objectively call out those those challenges and problems. So a lot of it is is that experience as well. And then the third data point we have for experience, in addition to the research, the implementation experience on the agnostic side, the third area is our expert witness uh, experience. So we are hired quite oftenly for expert witness projects, which for those of you that don't know, that, that entails expert witness work entails a lawsuit um, in court. So there's some sort of lawsuit involving ERP or digital transformation technologies. They'll hire us to come in and provide an independent assessment of what happened, why did the project fail, um, what were all the different factors at play and all that stuff. So 
seeing those extreme examples of train wrecks and disasters in the industry has has really shown us, you know, what some of those best practices are of what not to do. And then certainly, you know, on, on the side of our more successful clients, we have plenty of examples of what you should do and what the contrast between those two things are. So those are really the three primary, you know, inputs into what we consider best practice and how we how we advise our clients. And I think there's a second part to your question, but now I forgot what it was. <laughs> well, yeah, no, that takes me to the the next thing I was going to ask you is for other consultants. I mean, I'm sure we have a handful of consultants listening right now, right? So I'm curious, what would what would you advise them to base their advice on? You know, because it's interesting, any mentor or coach or consultant, you know, they all have a different approach and it's all based on a different foundation, right? And a lot of it, all of it really comes back to experience, but it's, you know, how do you fine tune it and see, you know, what your angle is when you approach the table to to guide somebody, right? So I guess my next question was, what would you advise other consultants to teach on and find their story to share with their clients? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a tough question because, you know, I, I worked for one of the big system integrators early in my career and, and most consultants, I think, are probably working for a firm that is somehow aligned with a software vendor or a specific technology. So it's it's easier so it's easy for me to say because we're independent, I'll tell you what I think you should do, but the reality of whether or not you can actually do that working for the man, if you will, uh, is a totally different story. I, I mean, I guess I know this isn't answering your question, but what I can tell you is it, my experience working with uh, the big firm I worked with early in my career, um, our job was to push SAP. You know, that I worked for, uh, I was part of the an organization that was worked very closely with the SAP practice. And our job was to either recommend clients shift to SAP or in the cases where they had already selected SAP, our job was to come in and do the change management for it. So it was, it was sort of a twofold um, purpose we had. But when I was there, I remember, especially when we were doing software evaluations, I remember feeling like it was just wrong what we were doing. I mean, because we were billing a lot of money to tell clients the answer we already knew the answer to. And it didn't matter what the right answer was. We we had the answer. It was SAP. That that was the answer. And so it wasn't a matter of, is that the answer? It's how are we going to justify that answer? So, yeah, I mean, it, you know, I would ask, you know, what at the time seemed might have seemed to others within the organization like a stupid question of like, why aren't we considering other systems besides SAP? Or is SAP really the best fit for this client? I couldn't really ask those kind of questions without getting very strange looks. And I quickly learned, don't ask that question. That's not at all what you should be worried about. So, you know, I can tell you that you should do that, but I, I learned from my own experience and having been there that you can't really do that. You're sort of shackled by, you know, you're tethered by um, the realities of the organization you work for. What I'd say, if you're an independent consultant, you're not tethered by that, which there's not many people out there that are truly agnostic or independent. But if you are, then I'd say, you know, don't, don't be blinded by optimism. You know, don't, don't be, don't assume that everything's going to be great and that all the assumptions in your business case are going to come to fruition easily. I mean, you've got a, there's a lot of pains that go along with it. There's a lot of downside risk. You've got to look at the dark side as well and mitigate those. It's, it's when you stick your head in the sand and think that there's no, there's no risk or there's no downside or you're not considering all alternate options. That's where companies get into trouble. So I, I think that'd be the biggest thing I'd say is just really keep an open mind and be open to multiple paths or possible paths and objectively compare those paths to one another. That's great advice. And that applies to whether you're a consultant or you're just going through a transformation. I mean, 
you know, explore all options, don't leave anything off the table, right? And it, you also mentioned that one of the basis of your, um, you know, guidance to clients is sitting on, uh, you know, those cases where you're exploring those massive failures. And that's something that Lippy was talking about as well, when you guys kind of got into the conversation of what are some of the key causes of ERP failure. And one of the biggest things that she mentioned that stood out to me was fear of change. And we always go back to this. We always go back to it. It's organizational change management, right? So anybody, I mean, anybody who's anybody kind of gets a little bit freaked out when you start talking about change. And when it's change related to how your day-to-day operations are going to go as an employee, if it's change to, you know, am I possibly going to lose my job? You know, the fear is, it makes sense and it's understandable, right? And it goes back to that conversation about resistance. So my question to you, and I mean, Kyler, you could probably speak to this as well, but how how do you manage that fear? How can you, you know, kind of bring comfort to people as you walk into a digital transformation to help ease that uh, resistance? Well, I think first of all, the 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 more communication, the better. I mean, the more you can communicate and be transparent, uh, that's going to, that alone will alleviate fear. Even if there's messaging that employees don't want to hear, it's better than no communication at all. And I think a lot of times organizations are afraid themselves because they don't know that they don't have all the answers and they want to wait until they have all the answers before they communicate, you know, specifics to, to employees. And that's where, you know, it's, even though the intention is good, it, leads to some unintentional consequences when you do that. So I think being transparent and communicating as much as you can and uh, really just involving people through the journey. You know, if you can involve key stakeholders or key team members within all the different departments and locations, you know, within your organization, that's ideal. Now it's easier said than done because you still have a business to run and you don't want to pull away too many people for too long for this project. But you have to find that right balance where you do have heavy involvement and it might be more painful than you want to pull them out of their day-to-day operations. But if you really want this project to be successful and you're serious about it, then you know you need to find a way to backfill them or give them the support they need to be able to support the project in the way that they should. And in which case they're going to be more a part of the journey and they're going to own it. And then they can take that back to their, you know, their local teams or their different departments or whatever. Um, so those are probably the two biggest ways. And then maybe a third one would be just making sure that the the executive team and the project team are aligned on on the direction they're going and what the overall strategy is. If you do that, that's going to help alleviate or neutralize a lot of the headwinds that a lot of organizations face. When you're not aligned, that just creates a lot of chaos and confusion, which then leads to fear and doubt and, and that sort of thing. So those are just a few things that you know I'd focus on at least at a high level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to and to just build on that, um, I know in the book. And in the session, Lippy touched on, you know, the, the true role of executive leadership when it comes to digital transformation. Um, and it, it definitely sparked a trend, as Eric, I know you released a blog on Wednesday talking about the role of a digital transformation leader. Um, when it comes to change, being involved, and you kind of just touched on this earlier, um, having that balance of being of letting your team have the autonomy, but still being aware of what's going on and not being blinded by the optimism of the project manager to say this is all going great and and hopefully it is going great, right? But understanding what potential risks and being able to be aware and identify those risks. Um, 
trickle down to that conversation of change and making sure that you're keeping a pulse on the organization as an executive leader a lot of times there's that bubble, right? That that's not rising to you or that feedback isn't rising. So the importance of acknowledging that that's a huge part of your role as an executive sponsor or the overall um, alignment piece, but also making sure that you're still very much aware of what's going on within the change conversation. Because that's what oftentimes I've learned from Flippy and you, Eric, is where that resistance kind of harbors and then it becomes too late to really address it because the business is completely disrupted at that point. Um, so I learned specifically from that blog and, and Lippy that that's a, a key skill set of the executive on the actual project and the senior management of the business. Yeah, there's so much there that leaders and executives need to do that I, I don't think they're necessarily prepared for in most cases. Um, you know, decision-making and explaining the decisions that you've made and recognizing that not everyone's going to be happy with that decision and, you know, aligning those decisions with the overall company strategy and communicating them. I mean, all that stuff takes time. And a lot of executives think of this as a, you know, this is just an IT project or, a, you know, a technology initiative. And it really isn't. It's a, it is a true business transformation in most cases, if you're doing it right, if you're just simply doing an upgrade and you want to keep your processes the way they are, and you're not really looking for any meaningful change to your business, that's not terrible. That's not the end of the world. That's okay for some organizations. But if you're not one of those organizations, you really are trying to improve your business and, you know, take it to the next level as part of the transformation, then those are the types of uh, decisions you have to make. And one, one thing I'll, I want to do, we're, uh, I know you've got more questions for you, so let's take a quick break and uh, we'll dive into this a bit more because I know we've got a lot to unpack with this whole discussion. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back more just with more discussion about the book and some of the topics within it when we come back from more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. We are in the middle of a heated, uh, dramatic conversation about, uh, about the book that we are talking about, and I'm exaggerating quite a bit when I say heated and dramatic, but we are having a good conversation about some of the topics in uh, Building a Digital Future, which was our guest earlier in the episode. And right before the break, we were talking about change management leadership and how that uh, plays into alleviating fear. So, uh, Parisa, I don't know if that, does that answer your question or do you have follow-ups from that thread or uh, have additional yeah. questions? Well, it definitely answers my question, so thank you. But it did spark another question just around executive sponsors. So, you know, obviously in IT transformation, you you look to the CIO. But when you're talking about executive sponsors, I mean, would it be a best practice or a recommendation to reach to maybe 
the CFO, reach to a different executive. Um, you know, it's obviously going to be more of an appealing reach to the CFO if you're transforming how your accounting and finance team runs, obviously, right? But what if it's just an overarching ERP system? I mean, do you really need the CIO to be the eyes on it or would you benefit more having kind of that cross-departmental collaboration? Yeah, I think definitely the cross-departmental collaboration is, is what you want. Um, how to get there, you know, more commonly we see that someone other than the CIO being that executive sponsor and sort of the, the face at the executive level for the transformation is more effective in accomplishing that. And a lot of that is perception because it, you know, it's just a perception thing. If your CIO is the executive sponsor that people perceive that a lot differently than if your CFO or your COO are the executive sponsor. If it's a CFO or COO, that's, that signals to me, if I'm an employee, that signals to me that this is them leading it from a business perspective. If it's a CIO, I think, oh, okay, this is like an IT thing. Um, may or may not be reality, but that's the way, you know, the average employee is going to, going to perceive it. The, the, the only caveat to that I'd say is, you know, some of the more effective CIOs that I've worked with in my career are the ones that actually have worked in operations. So they have a bit more credibility than the average CIO because they understand how different parts of the business work. And if people recognize that about a CIO, then I think it's okay to have the CIO in that role, but you still have a percept, somewhat of a perception issue, but it's not as bad, you know, if you have a CIO who um, uh, has that background. But I think more importantly, you know, I think even beyond the perception, if you go a level deeper, when you have the business or someone from the business sponsoring it, it just changes the mindset of the entire team and the entire program. It becomes more focused on how are we going to make our business better and how are we going to organize our team? And yeah, by the way, how are we going to fit technology within that? But the, the priorities tend to shift a bit when you've got a different executive sponsor like that. So um, that's generally what we're, we recommend, which can be difficult, which I fully acknowledge because a lot of times the CIO is the one that drives or spearheads these projects or brings it to the table or, you know, convinces the executive team that they need to automate or digitize their business or whatever. Um, and so it can be hard to hand that off and not to say the CIO shouldn't be involved. They should be ex extremely involved for sure. But as far as who the executive sponsor is and who the tiebreaker is or the ultimate decision maker, you know, having the business on that side can be highly effective. You know, that opens the door to the, the steering committee, right? The Executive sponsor is super important, but maybe having that diversity on the steering committee is that piece in which bringing the whole business transformation. So we're making sure we're talking to sales, we're talking to marketing, we're talking to business operations and having all of those decision makers there. I think a lot of times what I learned from third stage projects is it's really unique to the business um, and their overall organizational structure, which is making sure ha we have those conversations of just the overall access and engagement of that executive is really more important than what is his or her C-suite title, you know, um, and how do they interact with that core team? Yeah, it's a great point that I'm glad you clarified that because it's not, you know, it's not just executive sponsor, obviously that that's one layer, but then who's on the steering committee that that's equally important. Just to make sure you've got that cross-functional representation, regardless of who your, who your executive sponsor is. So really and that sets the tone for that, that such important message that this is a business transformation. You know, we will go through this as an organization, as a community, it's not siloed to one, one department. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And going back to the original question before we uh, went to break around, you know, fear of change, that perception piece that you guys are talking about would probably play a huge role in how kindly people take to the change. I mean, if they perceive it, like you said, as a business transformation rather than just an IT transformation, they'll be more inclined to follow. But then also you think about it from just who is who is delivering the message. You know, if it comes from someone they like, trust and respect on their team, when it trickles down, they're probably going to be more acclimated to, you know, accept accept the change. So perception plays a huge role and it's kind of those intangible aspects of, you know, almost like human psychology that'll help you get the, get you across the finish line. Yeah. You need a, a change management therapist, right? Involved. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So let's transition to my next question. I want to talk about benefits realization because you and Libby discussed this, um, really to the extent of, you know, what are you missing um, at Go Live if you don't fine tune the operation and fine tune the, the program, right? So I'm my question to you is, you know, a lot of people are really focused on the project. That's what you guys were talking about. You're, they're focused on getting to the finish line. Um, let's complete the project, go back to our regular job, right? But they don't take the time to fine tune once they hit Go Live. So what, what should they fine tune? I mean, once you get to the finish line, you know, where can people focus on to make sure that they're really optimizing uh, the new technology? Yeah, well, I, I guess the first part is answer the first part of your question or what, what's embedded in your question is, you know, what is the finish line? Is, is the finish line go live or is the finish line to create business value and to improve the business? And those are two very different uh, finish lines. And I would maybe ask a third question of, is there even a finish line? Should there be a finish line? I mean, it, it, as much as people hate to hear that because you just want to be done and like you said, get on with your lives and, you know, forget the headaches and the chaos that went along with your transformation. You know, it's, you miss so much value. You spent all this time and money on the project and now you're just going to stop. And it just seems odd because, you know, there's so, there's, in the grand scheme of things, you spent this much time and money on a project. If you spent this much extra time and money, you would get so much value. And, and to me, that's the highest value part of the entire project is all the optimization you do afterwards. And so you have to look at all the things that, you know, more of an iterative process, all the things that don't happen in the first iteration of your, your first go live or, you know, day one of go live, um, you know, all the the not just the confusion, but the, um, you know, the processes that aren't working quite the way you thought they would, or the people that don't quite understand how to use the technology the way they should. So you've got to do refresher training or, you know, the data is, that's getting corrupted because people don't understand the new data structure. And so now the data is getting messed up, which is creating problems downstream. So you, you look at all these little things that are like little paper cuts, but then they add up to a bunch of lost value. And in some cases, you see a lot of companies that have so many paper cuts after him after the uh, go live that they actually are seeing less value or less productivity or less efficiency and effectiveness than they did before they, they went live. So, you know, that's, that's sort of what you're, you're up against. So you've got to really look at, you know, where's that finish line and, you know, what does that phase after go live look like and how are we going to staff it and allocate resources to it just as we would all the stuff leading up to go live. And, you know, the problem is so many companies are in such a rush to, move on to the next phase of the project. Or if that was it, that was the go live, like, like you mentioned, Bree, so they want to go back to their day jobs and, and call it good. So that's the dynamic you have to face. But as an executive or leader, you have to look at that and say, 
okay, maybe we spent, you know, whatever the number is, we might've spent a million dollars on this transformation or 10 million, whatever the number is. Um, why not spend an extra 5% of the time and effort and money that we just spent on the whole implementation just to get it right and really maximize and crank up that value. Right. And you mentioned rushing to the next phase. And I mean, that kind of goes back to our conversation about ERP failure, because I guess from what I've learned from you and from just everything that we're putting out, it's success comes when you are in budget and on time for the most part. So then when, when people are going through their transformation and they're rushing to that next phase in an effort to stay on the timeline, I mean, they could overlook things that they should be focusing on. Right. And ultimately it would come back to, you know, bite them in the butt a little bit. So <laughs> I guess what, you know, what's the trade-off there? Is it, is it more, is there more value in making sure that you stay on your timeline and stay within budget? Or, I mean, like you just said, is it worth, you know, kind of going that extra 5%, going that extra mile? Um, you've already come this far. You might as well crank it up and, and maximize what you've been doing. Trade-offs. Yeah. That's a great balancing question, you know, like, and it's, uh, there's not a science to it, but you do have to find that balance. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, companies get so focused on just those metrics of go live on time on budget and they're so proud of it when they hit it, but you really have to look at the longer term total cost and total benefit, not just what leads up to, to go live. Now, the risk here is that you actually have a lot more to lose by not doing the things you should be doing and, and potentially risking going over budget or going over time, that risk is actually a lot lower than the impact that it could have to your business after. I, I remember um, it was just a couple of years after I'd started my last company, our, our first, it was our first big implementation that we had managed as a team uh, together as a team. And the client um, had, we had pushed, the client had a bunch of customization for the software they, they implemented. There's a bunch of stuff they wanted to change. I won't get into whether that was the right answer or not, or whether they should have or not, but they did. They, they did a bunch of customization, which caused delays in the project. And um, there's already, I think, two delays leading up to this point. And, and we had recommended, because we were the PMO and we were doing the change management and the program management. And we had suggested to them that um, we push it out 30 days because there was still risk percolating that we hadn't fully addressed. And the CEO said, nope. We've already had two delays. We're not, we're not delaying again. And it would have cost, if I remember right, it was like $60,000 or something. It's a mid-sized manufacturing company, so they weren't huge. But it was going to be about $60,000 more in, in 30 days longer in the project. And he said, nope, we're done. I've already, you know, I've already overspent and over uh, did the time. And then when we went live, uh, they, the company lost. And when I say lost, I don't mean deferred or delayed or whatever. I mean, they actually lost $10 million in sales. So, um, which equated to, you know, somewhere between one and $2 million of profit. So, you know, to, in exchange for saving the $60,000, they lost one to $2 million of profit. Um, and those sales never came back because they were sales that, um, they couldn't, they couldn't ship and deliver because the system wasn't working the way it should. They couldn't ship, ship and deliver on time. So the, so the customers canceled the orders and went with a competitor. So, um, that's the sort of cost benefit you have to look at. And, and it's amazing how few people look past that finish line, as you call it, Parisa. They don't look at what, what's it going to look like on the other side. Because the last thing you want to do is say, yay, congratulations, we came in on time on budget, but we destroyed the entire business and brought it to its knees. That's not what anyone wants to see happen. So Yeah, definitely. And that's where those project health checks, right, that we've talked about on here and we've 
Um, we on our other podcast uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Digital Transformation Podcast, we talked about what a project health check looks like. So that way you can kind of take a break and say, where are we at? And this is the risks of kind of pushing through that um, intangible finish line or making sure that our, we're going back to our strategic goals, which is to increase sales or, you know, build value of companies or acquire other companies, whatever that, that looked like. Um, but I also wanted to touch just briefly, Parisa, on your, the other piece of that question when it came to business processes and operations um, and making sure that you really go through that process too, because of course the finish line is important, but as they, as Lippy said and Eric said in, in, in the interview, really building and owning um, what your future state looks like for business processes too is so important. I think something that a lot of our clients um, and partners don't realize is that can be kind of passed off to a system integrator or a VAR and saying kind of like that's off our list and we don't um, really, we don't own that. And I think it's, it's an important point to pull out how that can be misleading to get to that finish line and how important it is to own that process within your business internally. Um, and I think, Eric, you'd probably agree with that, um, that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, because your your technical implementer, whether it's a system integrator or VAR or whoever the vendor is that's doing the technical implementation, they're looking at the future state from the perspective of how do I build the software? Like, what do I need to know to design and build the software? And that's totally different than what is my end-to-end -end business process flow going to look like. I'm not, you know, your business is not individual pieces of technical workflows and technical configurations, but that's what a technical implementer does. So the job of the business is to pull those pieces together and as well as other pieces that have nothing to do with the technology. So the, the people and process side of it, and maybe there's other technologies outside of your core technology that you need to tie together as well, like, you know, within the architecture of it. So yeah, I, I totally agree. You've got to look, you've got to understand that difference and that Delta between what a technical system integrator is going to do versus what you need as a business. Yeah, definitely. And if, if, if our audience is interested in more information, our, um, Digital Transformation Podcast features Dave Beldick, who is an operations specialist. Many people saw him at Digital Stratosphere. He's a genius when it comes to how can you optimize that before your implementation. So definitely go check that out. Um, as Prisa, I think that's such an important question that a lot of times businesses don't think about or consider when it comes to um, that timeline and kind of pushing through. Like we pass this off, delegated to someone else, Delegation is important, right? But it's still so important to make sure that you're continuing to align with your goals as a business, not a different partner's goals or letting the technology lead to say it can do this function and you do this function. So we have to change our business to do function A and function B. That's not how that should work, right? We should say we want to be able to do this thing and let the technology join in that strategy, not lead it. Yeah. Absolutely. Well said. It's your project, right? You got to own it. Yeah. If you want it to end up how you envision it ending up. So yeah. great point. Um, I also want to touch on drivers of change because you and Lippy talked about this uh, 
very extensively, I'd say, is what is the catalyst to pushing companies to adopt a new technology? And I actually think this was a question from the audience that came in is how do you know when you're ready for change or, you know, what are the red flags that'll stand out and start waving when it's time for you to really look at your technology and your processes, like you just said, Kyler. So maybe we can, I know that there's a lot of red flags that could pop up, right? But at a high level, is it, you know, our sales are down or there's a kink in our process or, you know, what are some high level flags that you've seen companies come across that kind of sparks that idea of, hey, we'd probably benefit from updating our technology? Yeah, and anytime you, you find that you have a, a high degree of manual processes or dual processes, um, that's usually a, a pretty big red flag and every organization has that. It's just, you know, how, how much of that are they willing to tolerate, you know, the inefficiencies and the manual processes and whatnot. So that's, that's one um, red flag. Another one is if you're, if you haven't updated or upgraded your system in years, chances are you should either think about upgrading that system or look at new potential technology that might help get you more, you know, more cutting edge technology that can help um, improve and automate your business. And then the other one, you know, that's probably the more obvious and unfortunate one is when a vendor tells you they're going to stop supporting their system, which a lot of vendors are doing that as we speak. So um, they, you know, they're giving you some lead time that says you've got two years or three years or five years or whatever to get off our system. And then we're going to stop supporting it. And, you, you know, you're going to have to either upgrade to our new system or, you know, go find a different vendor. So those are some of the, the biggest ones that we see. Right. Gosh, that third one, your back's up against the wall at that point. Like the, like <laughs> yeah, that, that one irritates me. You know, a bad breakup. <laughs> Yeah, yeah with, with with an abusive uh, yeah. partner that uh, is going to force you to stay together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is so fun. There was something with JD Edwards, right? I mean, are they they pivoting away from supporting their platform? I remember us talking about this. Yes, I believe so. Um, I can't remember the year, but there's a. I think they have a year. On, I think they have a roadmap through 2030, if I remember correctly, for for JD Edwards that they'll support it, but still, you still have to look at that and say, okay, great. I, you'll support it, but are you really going to put R and D into it? Is it really going to evolve? Am I going to get machine learning and AI and analytics and all the stuff that, you know, Oracle's other products are going to absolutely get like Oracle fusion, cloud ERP or whatever they're calling it now. Um, so those are, you know, those are some things you have to think about. Right. Well, interesting. And this kind of takes me back to our beginning segment about Windows 365 rolling out, um, because their whole purpose of rolling out Windows 365 is to help with, you know, when you have multiple PCs, multiple um, employees from all over the world that are t going to take their PCs to the cloud, right? So this takes me to my next question is another question that was from the audience choosing a software for single instance versus multi-instance models for transformation. And and keep me honest here, Eric, but I assume single instance versus multi-instance is like a one-time global rollout versus multiple rollouts. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it's, and it's, um, an instance is sort of like a, um, imagine it is like a different, not a different version, but it's a different setup of the software. So like a lot of times companies will say, you know, North America, we're going to have an instance for North America and then we're going to have an instance for Europe because there's different processes there, different regulations, and we just want to set up a whole different instance there. Um, so that's, it, it, that's probably the simplest way. It's an oversimplification, probably the simplest way that I can think of to describe sure. it. No, that helps. Thank you. So it, it took me to the question of, 
are there softwares that are more suited for a single instance rollout versus a multi-instance rollout? Yeah. So when you look at um, software as a service, so the the NetSuites of the world, Workday, Salesforce, um, any sort of SaaS product, that's a multi-tenant. I, I don't want to say, I don't want to blur the lines too much though, but that's, that's multi-tenant and there really is sort of one instance. You're not, you're not, um, you're not setting up a whole new customization or, you know, a fully customized version or setup of that software for your organization. You're using the same software that everyone else using the software is. So that's sort of one where you're not going to get a multi-instance option, you know, within that model. But when you look at a product like um, SAP or even uh, Oracle Cloud ERP, those are two examples of on-prem or historically they were on-premise systems. They're moving to the cloud, but they, they have a hybrid model too, to where you can do cloud and on-prem, and you can also do multi-instance within those those models. So I'd say if you want multi-instance, stay away from the SaaS uh, solutions and look at more of the hybrid uh, cloud solutions. That's going to be your better bet for multi-instance. Interesting. Okay. That's good, good feedback. And, you know, I'm thinking with Windows 365, I want to say it's just applicable to their Microsoft products. But when you look at Azure, right, I'm saying it right, Azure. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> the way I say it. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like in based on what you just said, would Azure be more fitting for those multi-instance models? Yes, it could be. I mean, you could use Azure as a way to set up multiple instances in the cloud. But you could also use Amazon, you know, AWS or, um, you know, other other options out there. And, you know, like last week we had um, Brad from Estes Group uh, talking about his company that does, they're sort of a middle tier um, hosting and managed services provider. So there's other options like them that in addition to the huge, massive players like like Amazon and Microsoft. Right. Almost that boutique service rather than the, you know, Applebee's. Just kidding. Right. <laughs> the Applebee's of, of cloud. The Applebee's of cloud. <laughs> That's so interesting. I feel like I, I'm just a sponge learning about the cloud and it's, you know, now or never really, because the world is just trending toward all things cloud. So, um, you know, it's interesting to see what Microsoft is doing. It's interesting to see what all the other companies out there are doing, like doing and really how uh, the digital transformation industry is being affected by those changes. Yeah. And I think that's the great part about this book is it's like almost a, a walk before you run. Like it's very easy to go into these conversations and say like, we do AI, we have all these machine learnings, go into these software demos and leave like, I am, you know, I'm like a transformer in here type of thing. Um, but this book really kind of backs it up to saying like, these are the principles that you should remember when it comes to any sort of transformation. So definitely recommend reading it um, and just going chapter to chapter because it really does provide a roadmap um, and then going to see, you know, if these cloud systems, if these multi-tenant hosting systems, if all of these different options are are right for you. But first you have to know what are you doing, right? <laughs> and what's your goals and who's going to continue to get there before you've been ready to enter kind of the cloud conversation. And that's what I like about this book is it kind of backs up. Like, okay, how do you create that strategy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I agree. There needs to be more books like that out there. Yeah, we need a book club. I think we need a book club, guys. (laughs) I think so. 
Let's do it. Yeah. You're a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Well, well, thanks for, thanks for the, those great questions and additional insights into the, into the book and into the, the threads and the, the, the topics that we covered with Lippy. And thanks everyone for, for listening here today. Again, you can find us every Wednesday morning with new episodes on YouTube, uh, Google, Amazon, Spotify, Pandora, etc. So be sure to check us out every Wednesday, share it with a friend and uh, let us know what you think of the show. We'd love to hear your feedback. So I uh, want to thank you all. Thanks, Kyler and Parisa, for being here. And uh, we will see you all next week on Transformation Ground Control. Take care. Mm-hmm.